welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Peter Rosher, Global Head of Reed Smith's international arbitration practice. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. And with that, let's get started. Hello and welcome back to our Arbitral Insights podcast series. And I'm delighted today to be having a discussion with Bankim Thanky QC. Hello, Bankim. Hi, Gautam. It's really nice to have you. Bankim is, I mean, I've been wanting to do a podcast with Bankim for a long time because he really is a superstar and he is regarded as, as a superstar quite rightly at the English bar internationally. He has a, an incredible practice. It's, it's always difficult with someone like Bankim to try and limit the superlatives that one can say. But I mean, I'll start off by saying that Bankim became a QC in 2003, and he really is one of the superstars of the UK bar and has been recognized as such by a number of directories and has an incredible reputation. And I must say, I first sort of came across Bankim in, a, you know, in terms of a name in the long-running Bank of England Three Rivers litigation, which has spawned so much important law on the law of privilege. And I'm sure, Bankim, you'll never forget that line of cases, will you? No, I've made it my life's work to try and overrule the Court of Appeals judgment in Three Rivers Five, which the profession hates. And we got quite close in the ENRC case, but not quite. <laughs> they yes. criticised it, but it was obiter. So yeah, no, that whole period is, is seared on, on my mind with all the interlocutory battles on privilege and other issues like limiting the time for witness mm. cross-examination and, and the trial itself lasted for two years before it collapsed. So yeah, it's a big part of my life, that, uh, that litigation. <laughs> yeah, I know. And you know, not many people can say they've been in trials that have lasted two years. And you know, certainly you can. An incredible line of cases. So, but you've got an incredibly diverse practice, Bankim. I should have said for our listeners, those of those, you know, those of our listeners who don't know, Bankim is with Fountain Court Chambers, one of the preeminent chambers in London and internationally. A chambers we know very well as a firm as well, and uh, have worked with many people there. And indeed, Bankim's senior clerk, Alex Taylor, is a very dear personal friend of mine and many others at the firm. So, Bankim, I'm looking forward to this discussion with you. And you know, one of the things I always like to ask our podcast guests is how you got into law in the first place. Uh, so I wonder if you could share some of your background as to why you went into law. Sure. It was really by accident. It wasn't a plan. Um, I read history at university and I think my ambition was to become a history academic for a long time. And I was uh, lined up to do a doctorate in modern British history and was on the cusp of starting that. I had funding in place and my my lovely tutor in ancient history at Aileal College at Oxford, he had a chat with me in my final year as I was approaching finals and said, are you sure this is a good idea? He said, you can do it. And, you know, I'm sure... There are aspects of doing a doctorate you would like, but you'll find it quite lonely. Um, it's quite solitary. You're a very sociable person. Have you thought about the bar? It's just as intellectual as academia, 
and you'll make a lot of money. And so I went away, thought about it, and he'd sold, he'd sold to me the, uh, the, the, the better prospect on offer at the bar. So yes, I did the conversion course and, and, and then trained as a barrister and did my pupillage at Fountain Court. And I've been here ever since the late 1980s. Yeah, no, it's incredible. I mean, no, I think history is always one of those interesting disciplines because it is very similar to law. Because you you analyze facts, you analyze the situation, you and you you interpret and you come out with one view or the other, and you find evidence to support that view. So I can see there's a lot of parallels. But I think your tutor at Balliol did us a great favor <laughs> by by giving you that tip because because academia's loss was definitely the law's gain. Yeah, so, well, it was it was um, very much a fountain court thing. So that Lord Bingham was one of our sort of mm. former uh, famous former members who, in fact, had also been at Balliol, and he always thought that it was preferable to do a non-law degree and, pre- and he, he thought history as a historian he thought history was the best degree to do if you wanted to become a barrister and so he was quite actually a strong role model and encouraged me to to apply here he'd left fountain court by that stage he was already a judge but he was very encouraging about fountain court and that fountain court had a very broad range of work which would attract itself to someone with quite a broad range of interests and over the years, Fountain Court attracted quite a lot of non-law graduates. So about 40% of us didn't read law at university, which is quite unusual for one of the magic circle sets. Yeah, no, that is unusual, actually. But, um, you know, there's clearly something very, uh, there's a great magnetic power in Fountain Court because they've clearly got, I mean, just looking at the people at Chambers who, who you've got, that's, that's a very impressive roster in that 40%. But, you know, actually, it's increasingly very similar in the, in the solicitor side of the profession that uh, we have been getting more and more non-law graduates over the years. And indeed, having dis- a different discipline is often a, a big advantage because it, it, you're just more flexible and nimble in your thinking. So you talk there about Lord Bingham, one of the doyen of our judges, the late Lord Bingham, as being someone who gave you advice and mentored you. Looking back over the years... Who else has really been instrumental in mentoring and sponsoring you and giving you inspiration to do what you do? So I guess I guess three people I would sort of single out. One was my first pupil master, Trevor Phillipson, because I really, really found bar school boring. And <laughs> I was just wondering whether I'd made the right the right turn and whether in fact my teacher had been wrong and I should have should have stayed in academia. But I arrived for pupillage at Fountain Court and Trevor was my first pupil master and I absolutely loved pupillage. Suddenly being confronted with real cases, with real facts. And I, I like what I like about a new case and Trevor kind of instilled this in me was Much more interesting than the law is actually discovering a new set of facts when you first open the metaphorical pink tape round, it's increasingly metaphorical now rather than real, but (laughs) pink tape round a new set of papers. And just discovering a new set of facts was really interesting. And he, he was utterly meticulous, but a very flamboyant advocate. But what people didn't see was that he was like a a duck on water, very serene, or a swan maybe, very serene on the surface. But there was furious preparation that went on before he went to court. And I learned a lot from him, but also not just how to conduct a case, how to be on top of the facts and how to perform in court, 
but how the level of detail you needed to absorb to be on top of a case before you dare to go into court. And Trevor, unfortunately, died quite early in my career. He was only in his early 50s, so he didn't hang around, unfortunately. But my second pupil master, Michael Brindle, was a, I'm sure you've come across. Yes, yes. Was, was a big influence on me, A, during pupillage, but B, because he gave me a lot of my work as a QC in the first few years of my career. So he introduced me to firms like Reed Smith, to Freshfields, to Linklater, Slaughter and May. All of my sort of big contacts in my early years in practice, I would say 90% of them came from Michael by bringing me in as a junior. So it was a great leg up into into a stellar practice. Um, so I owe him a lot. And I, I, I loved working with him, but he was so... I, I can't pretend I copied him in the sense that Michael has this sort of fantastic memory. So if you look at the trial bundle of mine, it's literally marked up all over the place with yellow <laughs> post-its and so on. Michael mm. would go into court <laughs> and he would know every page of the bundle, but there mm. wouldn't be a single post-it in sight, maybe one um, <laughs> or two. But if you, but he would be able to tell you that the important document was at page 518 of bundle B33. He would remember everything. <laughs> uh, and I can't pretend to emulate that. But no, he was a great great role model. And I guess the third person was my late wife, Catherine, who passed away a few years ago. But without her kind of encouragement and support, I don't think I would have been able to make it at the bar because she she basically allowed me just to focus on my practice while she got on with running the rest of our lives. It would be dishonest of me not to not to mention her huge contribution to anything that I've managed to achieve. Well, Bankim, I mean, that's a very touching tribute. And you know, you've had such an incredible career so far. And it's only right that huge tribute is given to Catherine uh, in that respect. And you've made her very proud and you've made all your mentors very proud, if I may say. And and I'll take this opportunity to say that, you know, you're an icon for people of South Asian heritage, not just at the bar, but in the law generally. Well, that's very nice to hear. No, you, gen- you know, you definitely are a Bankim and uh, it's a source of great pride that we see people like you doing so well because the, the commercial bar, as you know, is not really that well populated with people of South Asian heritage. Things are changing, yeah. of course, and uh, there are a number of people coming through now, both at junior and silk level, and it's great to see. And, you know, we'll return to this theme a little later on in our discussion. You know, one of the myriad number of areas that you are a leader in and I mean, just for our listeners, the directories, I mean, those of you who don't know, rank Bankim as a superstar in multiple areas of practice, quite rightly, ranging from banking to insurance to aviation to commercial fraud, but also international arbitration. And that's an area I want to talk about with you, Bankim. You know, is it fair to say that you sort of came into international arbitration sort of a bit by accident because it was sort of part of your practice and the case cropped up at the time that led to further cases and more cases in that area? Yes, definitely. That's that's a fair characterization. And there was never any plan to have a big arbitration practice. And the focus of Fountain Court when I arrived was very much on court work rather than arbitration. We didn't have the same emphasis as, say, Essex Court Chambers on arbitration as being the predominant part of our practice. 
that's changed over the years, but it was very much through making contacts in a high court litigation contact who then happened to have an arbitration and instructed you or recommended you to an arbitration colleague. So it was very much accidental that I, I came into international arbitration. It wasn't really part of any grand plan. And what about sitting as an arbitrator? I mean, is that something you enjoy doing? I do it occasionally. I, I guess I probably do more of it as the years pass. But I much prefer being an advocate in arbitration to being an arbitrator. I find being a sole arbitrator quite lonely and a bit dull because there's no interaction with a team. So I will quite often ask for an arbitration secretary <laughs> if, if I'm sitting yeah. as a sole arbitrator. But I like to keep my hand in. I, I sit as an arbitrator maybe once or twice a year. And uh, it's good for me to, to see the other, because I don't have any judicial aspirations. It's quite good for me to sit as an arbitrator from time to time to see the other side of the, the fence, as it were. I quite like sitting as a, a wingman or as a chair of an arbitral tribunal from time to time. But again, I much prefer the advocacy side to being an arbitrator, which I guess is one of the reasons why I never had any great aspirations to become a judge. Well, I mean, can I say it's a pity that you're not on the bench? But again, I mean, the bench's loss is the bar's gain. So the fact that you're there going great guns as, as counsel is absolutely fabulous. I mean, you know, just on that point you mentioned about advocacy, we all know that there are a lot of differences, but yet many similarities in the dispute resolution process and litigation and, and arbitration have a lot of you know, things in common, but also some things that are different. To what extent do you think you modulate your way of advocacy in, say, a litigation as opposed to an arbitration? Well, it's much more casual in arbitration and an overtly high court style would not go down well. It slightly depends on the, the nature of the arbitrator. And a lot of them obviously nowadays come from a judicial background, but not, not all of them um, necessarily. But even those who do come from a commercial court background, say, tend to adapt. So one notices changes in arbitrators who were judges in terms of their, their approach. There are some like Andrew Smith who are very similar as arbitrator as they were on the bench. And there are others like, say, Liz Gloucester and Lord Hoffman, who you can see gradually modify their approach as they sit as arbitrators. I guess it also makes a slight difference having to market yourself to an extent <laughs> as an arbitrator because um, you want to be a user-friendly tribunal, I guess, sometimes to not to be biased at all. I wouldn't suggest that for a moment, but to be someone that people want as an arbitrator means that I think you can't act in exactly the same way as you would as a judge if that isn't too controversial. No, no, I, no, I think you're spot on. You know, one, a colleague of yours from Fountain Court that I had a number of times in arbitrations where he was a member of a tribunal was Sir Gordon Langley. And he, of course, was a high court judge for many years and then retired. And I can recall having him on a number of tribunals where, you know, he had a very affable character, yes. you know, but, but yet you knew that he was very sharp on yes. the detail and he could sort of turn from a sort of a very sort of easygoing manner to, hey, hang on a second, then, you, know, you know, what about this point? You know? And so I always found that was a really nice sort of cocktail. Yeah. You know, I always found his manner, I actually found it very, 
you know, were very nice, actually. Yeah, that's a very good example, actually, to give, because he he doesn't signify either of the trends that I um, mentioned a moment ago, because he he is very similar on the bench to the way he is as an arbitrator. He still sits occasionally as an arbitrator, though he's sort of winding down. He was actually my first leader on the BCCI Three Rivers um, Ah, trial yes, yes, yes. Stadlin came in. And so I've known Gordon for years, but he was exactly the same on the bench as he is as an arbitrator because <laughs> he had a very low-key, affable, as you say, very informal style on the bench. You know, it would be jokes from the first minute you start. And as you say, he could turn very quickly to being serious, not unpleasant, but serious from being very affable. But he had exactly the same style as an arbitrator as he had on the bench. So he didn't have to adapt his style at all to be an arbitrator. He was a very popular arbitrator, always in demand. Yeah, I know. I think that's one of the interesting things, isn't it, Bankim, that we want arbitrators to be judges, but not act like judges. Yeah. I think that's where I would summarise it in that sense. You want people, you know, who've got authority and gravitas and who can get the issues, but who'll be able to bridge civil law cultures, common law cultures, and just sort of just mix in and not, you know, too magisterial in how they deal with things. But no, that's really interesting. So, you know, tell us a little bit about, I mean, one of the things that I can't resist asking you about is this. You've been involved in so many interesting, important cases. And we've spoken about the Bank of England Three Rivers litigation. I mean, are there any other cases that you've done so far in your amazing career that really stand out for you? I guess the one that means the most to me, and it's quite pertinent in terms of recent events, is I've done quite a lot of work for Ukraine over the last few years, instructed by Alex Jerby at Queen Emanuel. And that's the first big case was, in fact, against the Russian Federation. started out as a Eurobond issue issued by Russia by effectively... Ukraine borrowed $3 billion from Russia in 2013. And the circumstances were extraordinary because Ukraine had wanted to join an accession agreement with the EU to become a member of the EU. And Russia was very much against that and effectively blocked Ukrainian accession to the EU, made various threats to Ukraine, including to its territorial integrity. And Ukraine backed away from joining the EU. And that was followed by the Maidan revolution and then the uh, invasion of the Crimea and the eastern provinces of, of Ukraine. And Russia, we obviously were not keen as a state after those events to repay the loan by way of the Eurobond. And when Russia sued us, um, we brought all the available defences we had including duress, which is the most important aspect of the defence, and that various threats have been made, including to our territorial integrity, which our case was that that had induced our entry into the Eurobond. That has gone all the way from Mr Justice Blair, at the first instance in the commercial court, where we lost, and then we succeeded in the Court of Appeal. And then in 2019, we went to the Supreme Court We then went back to the Supreme Court after the Times travel judgment in the Supreme Court, where Ukraine also intervened. And then we went back. Mark Howard is on the other side. We went back last November and we're waiting for our judgment. But I've got to know my clients very well. I've become very fond of them personally. 
I've become very fond of Ukraine as a country, and I feel quite strongly about recent events. Uh, so that case is very, very memorable to me. It's not over yet. We're still waiting for judgment. But a lot of the last three or four years have been devoted to that case of over and above all others. And as a result of that, I've also done a very big investment treaty arbitration for Ukraine, which arose out of claims involving Ukrainian gas, which I can't say a huge amount about, but it's been reported in the Ukrainian press. So basically, it was a claim by a couple of oligarchs against Ukraine, and we succeeded in defeating a $6 billion claim under the Energy Charter Treaty. So I've done quite a lot of work for Ukraine. They've become very close as a client. And I have to say, one thing I would just add is that the fact that they have fought the invasion so hard has been the least surprising thing to me because mm-hmm. one aspect which came became very clear to me is that they are tough bastards, if you don't mind my saying that. No, I know. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. I've got clients who I was associated with who are financiers, lawyers, who are you know, the main point of contact on the Ministry of Finance team who instructed me, who are literally sleeping with Kalashnikovs under their beds at the moment. They are tough people, and I'm full of admiration for them. So I think that's the, that's, the, that's the aspect of work which recently stands out the most for me. As I say, it's, it's not over yet. No, well, I mean, that's very powerful. And I, mean, I share your incredible respect and admiration for the spirit of yeah. Ukraine and its people. Slava Ukraini. Indeed. <laughs> and, you know, and actually that, segment you just spoke of there about the work you're doing incredibly powerful and and you know incredible results too so very well done on that Duncan you know as we approach the end of the podcast one of the things that I always like to do and our listeners really enjoy is some more light-hearted conversation which is about you know based around three things so I'm giving you a little bit of fair notice because I've not told you this before about music, film, and travel. Yeah. So when you're not doing these incredible cases and, and you can relax to some music, what sort of music do you enjoy? Any particular singers, bands, or types of music? So I have very eclectic um, tastes, which I'm pleased to say I've managed to pass on to my children. Steve <laughs> is incredibly cool as a result. but Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so very, very eclectic. I like some aspects of bluegrass music. Mm. I'm a great fan of everything which uh, I guess can be broadly labelled as Americana, even though it may not, strictly speaking, be American. But I like Neil Young, who's, of course, technically Canadian. I uh, Bruce Springsteen, I'm a huge fan of. Mm-hmm. And what else? I guess, apart from that kind of period of music, which I do like a lot, I, I spend a lot of my time at the opera. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I I would say my favourite composer is Verdi, um, followed by Mozart. A bit less Puccini, but um, Verdi and Mozart are my two favourite composers. So a very mixed set of musical tastes. So, uh, yes, I took my daughter with me to see Madame Butterfly um, Uh the other day. Mm. It was a very nice evening out. The part of Suzuki, the maid, was played by a Ukrainian singer, who got oh. a, a standing ovation at the end of the, uh, oh, end of sure. the evening, which is very nice to see. <laughs> now, you know, it's funny you say about Madame Butterfly. A few years ago, I was in Australia with my family, and uh, 
we saw Madame Butterfly at the Sydney Opera House. Fantastic. I'd love to see that. And that was quite an experience because it was the first performance I'd seen at the Opera House. And I'm not an expert at all or an aficionado as you are, Bankin, but you know, there's something very special about, you know, certain types of performance like that. It's it's sort of you just cap there's a certain spirit and you feel that everyone in the audience is like really focusing. Yeah. And they're really and they want to absorb every single note and every single movement. And I certainly felt that. And then what about film? I mean, are there any, any sort of particular types of film that you really enjoy? Yes, so I like everything and uh, most things. And a family as a whole has a very wide range of of, uh, film tastes. We're a family of film buffs, so we do like... We've got a little home cinema, which we make use of. Um, It's quite a nice family thing to do together Mm. as well. But I guess my favourite filmmaker, and I don't even know if I'm allowed to mention him because he's been generally cancelled, but I am, I'm afraid, a great fan of Woody Allen and both his serious mm-hmm. and comedy films, I think some of them are masterpieces. So one of my favorite, two favorite films are Annie Hall and Play It Again, Sam. And Play It Again, Sam, I still find funny. It's a, a great play on Casablanca, um, the classic Bogart film. And my favorite scene in it is where the incredibly ugly Woody Allen wakes up next to his new, very beautiful bride. <laughs> she opens her eyes and the first thing she does is to scream. <laughs> at the sight of Woody Allen. So it's probably not fashionable or appropriate to mention Woody Allen, but he's probably my favourite filmmaker. Followed by, I really like Almadovar. Oh, yeah. Mm. So I like most... uh, So I saw Parallel Mothers recently with my family, which is a very evocative, moving film around the Spanish Civil War. I like the colour and the vibrance, vibrancy about Almadovar. There's always something going on, um, and it's always very beautiful to, to look at. So... And I suppose recently I've got into a lot of foreign cinema, which is a bigger profile thanks to streaming services in in the UK. So Korean cinemas have seen very much the fore, enjoyed Parasite recently, which obviously Mm -hmm. won an Oscar, I think, a couple of years ago. So, yeah, a very eclectic film taste, but we we, we spend quite a lot of time watching movies together. It's a great family thing to do. It is, it is. And you know, one thing I'll just say very, very briefly, Blankin, when I was based in our Singapore office for three and a half years, a number of years ago, I used to watch a lot of foreign language films in Singapore, because even in the mainstream cinemas, they have a lot of foreign language films. Um, yeah. you, know, you know, Korean films, Indian films, you know, Japanese films, a number of different types of what some would say would be more sort of art house films. And these were in mainstream cinemas. They weren't just in the niche ones. So, but no, that, that's really interesting. And I'm also a big fan, although I won't divert our podcast, but, uh, you know, I think Almodovar is an absolute genius. Yeah. And he spawned the careers of some of the most, you know, highly sought after actors and actresses of Spanish origin. So uh, the last question then about is on travel. Are there any particular places that you just love going to and or that you're planning to go to sometime soon? So, again, we have quite eclectic tastes of the family, which Catherine instilled in us and the children, a real kind of travel bug. I guess our our kind of happy place, which we go to as a family again and again, is the Isles of Scilly, just off the Cornish coast. And we used to have a holiday home on the north coast in Cornwall. So that part of the country is part of the UK that we go back to again and again. 
along with the west coast of Scotland, which we also love. But one of the deals we struck when we bought the house in Cornwall was that we wouldn't stop traveling more widely. We wouldn't just be a boring family that just went to a holiday home. So as I say, Catherine started this, but we really go all over the world and, and COVID has been a rude, rude interruption to our travels. But we've had some fantastic holidays in the wilds of British Columbia. The best holiday I think that we did as a family was to Alaska, which was absolutely mm-hmm. fantastic. You start with Anchorage and get in and out of there very quickly, uh, which isn't my favourite place. But then we went to a whole series of wilderness lodges, some of which are so remote you can only reach by helicopter or by seaplane. And you know, getting up close to grizzly bears and so on, it was the holiday of a lifetime. So Alaska, I think, was the most exciting holiday we've done, fo- followed closely by some very remote parts of British Columbia. But Holidays are something that brings us together as a fact, because some of the children have flown the nest, but they all come back to go on holiday with me uh, without partners. Uh, uh, we're going to Israel as a family, uh, ah. five of us in at Christmas, which will be fun. Oh, fantastic. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> you know, no, I, th- I think travel is such a wonderful thing. And uh, it's lovely that you keep doing that as a family. So, Lubankin, thank you so much for being such a wonderful guest. It's been such an enjoyable discussion with you. I admire you hugely and I admire your profile, your success, everything you stand for, the bar as a practitioner and as a role model. And I just want to express my appreciation to you for all that you do and continue to do in that respect. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Bankim. Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email arbitralinsights at reedsmith.com. To learn about the Reed Smith Arbitration Pricing Calculator, a first-of-its-kind mobile app that forecasts the cost of arbitration around the world, search Arbitration Pricing Calculator on reedsmith.com or download for free through the Apple and Google Play app stores. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, reedsmith.com, and our social media accounts at Reedsmith LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.